This evening I want to uh, explore with you how to bring our metapractice home and into the world. And I was thinking of uh, a wonderful line from uh, Fats Domino, the great musician. He said, it's not how far out you go, it's how you bring it home. <laughs> true in music, true in meta practice. <laughs> uh, first, though, I thought I'd like to uh, announce some of the uh, finalists for the meta model contest. Remember, that's where we were, you know, in the constant repetition of metaphrases, sometimes they get mangled, right? So here, here are some that people reported to me. May I be honey. <laughs> and that, here's one. Instead of saying, may I be healthy, someone said, May I be Heather. <laughs> May you be clean. <laughs> May I care for myself slappily. And the last finalist, may I collapse at no peace. <laughs> so the practice of metta has a very simple intention, but it's not a linear path. And so uh, many of us probably have experienced the challenges of talking a little bit and uh, then coming back, right? And it can feel, does anyone feel like after talking a little bit, uh, you come back and it's all over? Anyone feel that? <laughs> well, you at least have the thought, yeah. So actually a very uh, precious time now to really stay with the practice, keep coming back. Uh, any stories you tell about the retreat being over um, are untrue. It's over tomorrow. <laughs> okay, so actually a lot of learning can occur in the last period. You can watch habits coming back, patterns forming, but you can also notice the strength of your practice and how you can keep going. So try to really stay, stay with it fully. You know, when we bring in speech and we bring in, uh, when we go home, relationships, uh, being in the work setting and so forth, it really is in a way more advanced meta practice. Retreats uh, involve simplified situation where we always simplify for the sake of training keep it simple, focus, right? And then the, as it were, bringing it home is how we keep that practice going when things are more complex, faster moving, and we're doing much less formal practice, right? So the conditions will change, right? And so I wanna give a number of uh, suggestions you know, based on my and others' experience for how to uh, guide our own practice as we come back into our daily lives. One way to state the long-term aspiration is to give a line from the great Tibetan yogi named Shabkar, practiced in the first half of the uh, 19th century in Tibet. He said, 
Let your life and practice be one. That's her aspiration. Not easy. Not easy in this culture. Probably not altogether easy in Tibet, right? Has its challenges. Our direction is towards having metta be more and more our way of being. So we could say that we move from the doing of metta practice to being metta. That's our aspiration, not easy, right? To being it, but I imagine that we felt that even in some of the conversations, you could feel that the metta was there as we changed, as you listened to someone and how many people felt just a lot of care, whatever we call it, love, kindness, just in listening to one other person. Yeah, that the metta was, was there, yeah. It's a challenge really of our times to have our life and practice be one. You know, to um, live in a way in which we could say, we can use different words for it, but we have uh, integrity. You know, our life comes out of that simple intention to, to care, to connect that with wisdom, to manifest the wise embodied heart with ourselves and with others. And it's hard in the culture which often seems to value uh, distraction and busyness, not to mention at times greed, hatred, and delusion. (laughs) You know, and this, um, I imagine that for many of us, we could feel, or we have felt in our lives, this this, uh, longing for integrity right, to live with the kind hearts. And then we come up against situations or we come up against uh, social conditioning. We come up against the world. We come up against the injustice. And it's hard to, how do you live a life of integrity organized around the simple intentions of our practice towards kindness, towards wisdom, towards compassion, You know, and I I was reflecting some on my own uh, quest really for integrity. I didn't, I don't think I use that language, but there was a way that, uh, uh, you know, maybe like you, it was hard at times to understand how things worked, you know, or to, um, I remember being four or five years old and feeling sometimes the meanness of the other kids. And I didn't get it. Like, how, why are they, why are they doing that? Right, uh, where does that come from? It was confusing. Um, you know, and I think integrity is also connected with integration. You know, roots roots uh, are the same. How do we connect our practice with our work, our relationships and so forth? And I know this was also uh, very important, you know, as I was growing up. And I I know my my parents, for example, I was thinking especially my mother, Bernice, whom whom many of you met. You know, she would always come to the meta retreats. And she died almost three years ago, right? And many of you have met her. So I'm glad we're carrying, carrying forth the family tradition of visiting meta retreats. <laughs> so, um, you know, she uh, was, uh, went to school at a time when they advanced people in school if they were capable of going further. So she graduated high school at age 15, right? And she saw a lot of um, negatives in that in terms of connecting with one's peers and so forth. I mean, I think probably some positives, but, and um, 
Um, that could have been, something like that could have happened with me, but uh, they wouldn't let it happen. They wanted me to not advance grades and they also emphasized integration, like connecting academic achievements with uh, connecting with others and also, you know, for me a lot with sports, right? So there's a lot, you know, that was really emphasized, integration of the different parts of myself, not one dimensional. And that integrity, I also think of my, uh, my father, Simon, who was a scientist. And he uh, um, worked for uh, National Institutes of Health near Washington, D.C. I don't think they got, had real big salaries. Because I remember once uh, we had our, our TV set went unrepaired for one year. Uh, which I think was a real drag <laughs> uh, at that time. But uh, there was, he was a few times offered like three times the salary to go work for drug companies. And he was a biochemist and he never wanted to do that. And that was something inspiring for me about integrity. You know, and you know, just maybe one other uh, story in that way that I know when I was uh, in my kind of later teens, I was very uh, drawn to activism and to, uh, you know, it was a time of uh, a lot going on, you know, uh, sort of the tail end of the civil rights movement and Vietnam War and so forth. And um, it was confusing how the people who wanted a better world that I met, at least in college, sometimes were self-righteous and didn't treat other people like the kind of new world that I wanted, right? In other words, and then I studied, you know, I studied the history of different revolutions, you know, uh, American or French or Soviet, and I saw how so often people wanted to end injustice and oppression and they uh, kept it going or brought about new forms. So it was confusing. How do you have the integrity there to um, not do that? Right? So maybe some of you can relate to that, just the challenges of um, coming of age, learning about the world and trying to keep with your kind heart, your wisdom, the longing that's there. How many, how many can relate to some version of that? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking of uh, another way of asking those questions that was asked by the great uh, African-American uh, sociologist and activist, W.E.B. Du Bois. Some of you know his work. And um, he lived a long life. And at the age of 89, he decided to write uh, three novels, <laughs> which he completed. You know, and uh, in one, I think the first volume of the novel there was one point where he asked four questions, which are really questions of integrity that I think are also important. How does integrity face oppression? What does honesty do in the face of deception? This was like from the late 1950s. What does honesty do in the face of deception? What does decency do in the face of insult? And how does virtue meet brute force? It's powerful questions, right? And um, in many ways we could say, how can we bring metta into the world? The spirit of metta, similar, you know, it's really similar. Um, you know, and I was thinking of, I'll be referring to Dr. King some, it's his birthday tomorrow and might do a little bit of a birthday. Um, <laughs> special, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, 
but he, he's, he's, he's a great resource. And I'll bring back his voice a few times in terms of uh, looking at this question. And it was, it was uh, wonderful for me. One of our retreatants here uh, met him and talked about that experience. You know, and I was thinking my parents were, uh, I think they were at the front of the march in 1963, the I Have a Dream speech in Washington. They were at the front of the march and I think they sat 10 feet away from Dr. King at that. So it's kind of been a presence in my, my own life since I was pretty young. So I want to explore uh, this question of how we bring it home in three ways. First, by looking at how we bring our metta practice home in terms of our own individual practice. Secondly, in terms of our bringing metta into our relationships. And thirdly, how we bring it into the world. And again, I'll try to share some of what I have found helpful and uh, what I've learned from others. One practice is to come in and out of retreats, to have this intensive training. I like to suggest a practice actually of knowing when your next retreat is. Interesting practice, because it actually is saying this is a priority. I notice when I know when my next retreat is, which for me is like two weeks. <laughs> uh, when I know when my next retreat is, something in me knows that I'm taking care of what I, I value. Now, if you're newer, if you're first retreat, no pressure. You know, I mean, sometimes it takes some time. What was that? <laughs> Right, so that's okay. <laughs> you know, and um, now one, one uh, related practice that I've been doing most of the last 35 years is a one day a week Sabbath practice, which is kind of like a mini retreat. You know, where one day a week I uh, take part or most of the day and have it be dedicated to practice and uh, it kind of gives, as the tradition has developed, excuse me, both East and West, it gives something like a return to a little bit of a retreat space. Some people that I work with do that like uh, once a week in the morning, three hours. Some people do it twice a month, right? Some people do it once a month. can be three hours once a week. When you do it the same day, it becomes a pivot for the week. And which is, you know, again, how it functions in religious spiritual traditions. Um, and I do mine on Wednesdays, <laughs> not the traditional Sabbath day, but I do it on Wednesdays because I often teach on Wednesdays uh, down in the community hall. And so I come teach in the morning, have lunch, and then I actually often come up in the retreat area, like maybe from 2.30 to 9 or so, and I sit in the staff area. And I practice. Some of you have seen me probably at, at retreats. And it's like going into a retreat mode once a week and it changes things. You know, it gives some deepening of practice um, and so forth and just, just really helps with the process. So again, one day may be too much, but maybe three hours once a week, three hours twice a month can work. If you do it the same day of the week, it'll uh, start to really uh, establish a rhythm. It can be really powerful, yeah. And you could, it doesn't have to be quite so, uh, what, uh, structured as here. You could do something like you sit for half an hour, take a walk, listen to a talk, read a little bit, do another sitting. Basically, you know, one way I sometimes suggest is just take, take three hours and do what is nourishing for you. Do what nourishes your practice. You know, whatever that is. But something like that can really, really make a difference. Of course, uh, daily practice is crucial, right? Daily formal practice and metta can really be wonderfully brought into uh, just all sorts of aspects, 
of daily life. But, uh, you know, some of us may want to do a metta practice as our main practice. I've sometimes been really inspired by metta and it's been my main practice for six months. And I think that's true of many people on the team. And you might want to do that. Or you do half and half, half mindfulness, half metta, something like that. Um, they can go together well, you know. I think um, in some ways that uh, Buddhism has developed in the West, uh, metta sometimes gets a little bit marginalized. You know, that uh, the tradition that developed from that text Vasudhimaga, which we mentioned from the fifth century, uh, tends to devalue what in the original text is called citta uh, vimuti. Uh, Vimuti means uh, liberation, and citta means like the mind and heart. And in the suttas, in the discourse of the Buddha, that was seen, and metta would be that kind of practice, it was seen in a way just as important as the uh, liberation by insight and wisdom. But as the tradition evolved, insight and wisdom became more central. It wasn't that way in the text. And so, I think we're coming back to an understanding of the importance of becoming more free through the transformation of the heart, which is what metta practice is. So it's really fundamental practice. And we've sometimes said in the long run, they get integrated. You know, the mindfulness, the metta, the wisdom get integrated. So we can practice in all sorts of ways, experiment. We can do metta, for uh, 10 minutes at the end, 10 minutes at the beginning. Uh, Another way is trying to find uh, ways to bring metta into just the daily flow. And metta is really amenable. I think we've brought this out. Uh, Nishka was bringing this out, I think. And uh, metta can really work well with just seeing people on the street, wishing them well, doing, uh, being on public transportation. You can do radiating metta, fill up the entirety of the bus, the rapid transit car, and so forth. Walk down the street, do metta. Uh, metta for all beings is wonderful. Uh, I didn't mention it fully, but uh, when I do retreats here, I like to do metta for all beings in the dining hall. And I sit and I open my eyes a little bit, find one person, get the image of the person, close my eyes, keep on chewing, and say four phrases of metta. Then open my eyes, find another person, keep chewing, four phrases of metta. And I do that the whole of the meal. It works. It's quite, it's actually, I find it ecstatic sometimes. Try it for <laughs> try it for breakfast. <laughs> it really, and you can do that again. You can do it in meetings. Uh, uh, a lot of people I work with do metta when they're driving. Forgiveness practice is also helpful <laughs> in driving, but we can really do it. We can find these different uh, different ways to bring the metta in. One of the things I do, if I'm having a meal by myself, I will often do 15 minutes of metta just on my own in the meal. One of the secrets of bringing our practice, metta practice, as well as other forms of practice, alive, is finding periods of time where you can do the practice without it being something additional for the to-do list. In other words, it doesn't take any extra time, like having a meal, some people, again, do it while driving. Some people maybe have 10 minutes uh, between where they park and walk to the office. If you can find one or two, five or 10 minute periods that you're doing anyway, like I, I do practice, I do a knee exercise every day for 10 minutes in the morning and I just make it practice. No, no extra time needed. 
right? If you can find one or two things like that, it starts accelerating the practice because what, what you probably have found, you know, that the constant reminders here, you just, you just know, oh, practice, right? At home, the more of these short periods where you're coming back to practice, the more it'll pop up during the day and you'll, rem- you'll remember. So that's a little secret to find one or two, five, 10, 15 minute periods that you're doing something anyway. You know, do metta when you're washing the dishes, you know, and so forth. So um, another really helpful way for daily life is to bring the other, sort of the other heart practices in, in different ways. You know, maybe compassion, you know, something's difficult. A form of self-compassion practice that was developed by Kristen Neff is very simple. Something difficult is happening, three-step practice for self-compassion. Acknowledge that it's hard. Say, oh, this is hard. You know, uh, this is hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> right? And then secondly, acknowledge that it's something that happens to all human beings. Maybe not your exact predicament, but something like it. And then thirdly, give a, a, a phrase or a sentence to wish well. So this is hard. Yeah, this is part of the human condition, number two. Number three, yeah, may I do as well with this as I can? Something like that. Three-step, uh, on-the-spot compassion practice. Very helpful. Do whatever gladdens the heart also. Being with beauty. I, I think there's a close link between being with beauty and meta practice. It's interesting, right? Because it gladdens the heart, the heart opens. I once had a practice where every day I tried to be like at least half an hour with beauty. It would typically be going into the forest, you know. And I remember one time, uh, one time I did, uh, my longest meta retreat was about five weeks. And at the end of that five weeks, I came home and I looked at my house and I thought it was too cluttered. I needed more beauty. And so I did, uh, I embarked on about uh, two months of interior decoration. We could think of meta practice as a form of interior decoration, <laughs> making it more beautiful. But there's a connection, right? There's a connection between that, what gladdens the heart. So, so I took two months. It was actually during a time when I had my deadline for that book that was out there, the Engaged Spiritual Life, which is out on the table. And I had a deadline and I asked my editor, can I extend my deadline for two months so I do interior decoration? <laughs> and she said, yes. Very nice. So. And hopefully the book was better too. <laughs> um, so bringing, you know, bringing the intention for Meta also into different activities. I, th- I thought of uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, whom Heather mentioned, who uh, lived in this area till a short time ago and was in the tree Luna. And she said, I think not long after that, she, she says she has a practice she asks, is my action coming out of love? And she asked that for every significant action. Is my action coming out of metta? You know, that power of intention. You know? What's my intention for this conversation, for this meeting? Can I come with metta? And it just takes a little while to set that intention. Metta is also really powerful as what we sometimes call an antidote. It's a med- kind of a medical analogy that when we're having a difficult experience, particularly when we feel kind of ambushed or vulnerable, metta can be very helpful. You know, for example, 
we wake up in the middle of the night, it's 3 a.m., and we become self-judgmental about something that happened yesterday. Anyone ever had anything like that happen? Okay. That is a really good response, right? And if we have practiced metta every day, it'll be strong enough to be effective. Because we go to the metta, and because metta is a concentration practice, it'll actually tend to shift out of, at that time when we're vulnerable and the self-judgments, let's say, are strong, we want to suppress them. At other times, mindfulness is good. But at those, at 3 a.m. in the morning, we want to suppress them. And metta is a very good uh, negative experience suppressant. <laughs> and we can use it like that. It's helpful. Shift out, deal with it in the morning. When we're vulnerable, we're caught, we feel ambushed, maybe something really difficult is happening, mindfulness isn't workable, metta can be a way to work with it more to shift out of, out of what's difficult. And metta and compassion can also be really supports when we work with difficult experiences. You know, there's a, there's a way that our practice will accelerate when we take difficulties in everyday life as potential learning experiences. It's a little bit, goes against our conditioning, right? Difficult experience, and it goes against a little bit what I just said. Uh, get rid of them, right? But if we can actually work skillfully with the difficult experiences, and when we're really ambushed, vulnerable, then the metta is good to shift the energy. But at other times, we want to explore them. We want to take difficulties as learn, potential learning experiences. There's a nice Tibetan phrase, uh, sort of a folk saying, which goes like this. When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. (laughs) But it is when troubles arise that my faults are exposed. (laughs) There's a very, there's a sort of a very related, uh, also Tibetan phrase, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. And so we've developed some tools for that. Compassion, forgiveness. We haven't said so much about mindfulness of challenging states. A little bit with anger, you know, uh, sadness, fear. There's really a beautiful combination of sometimes working with mindfulness, exploring when it's in the workable range, getting to see it like we talked about in one of the mornings, that sometimes with anger, something's beneath it. Sometimes with anger we stay with it and sadness opens up, you know, or maybe a sense of wanting justice opens up, you know, or even love can open up when we stay with anger. We're mindful of it. And the mindfulness is a beautiful, with difficult states, the combination of mindful exploration and inquiry and holding it with the kind heart is really the formula for practice. And uh, it's really uh, changes everything when we can be skillful with the difficult experiences. Just a few other things that are supports for individual practice. Obviously, community, very crucial. Being connected with like-minded people in person, uh, electronically, telephone, whatever. People sometimes share, just share um, practice, you know. Once we had, uh, uh, out of the meta retreat, we had a monthly group in San Francisco developed where people came together once a month to practice meta together, right? Anyone who wants to do that, put a sign-up sheet on the board, right? It's wonderful. It lasted for about six years or so. And people did that, so groups, Working with mentors or teachers can really quicken our our development, uh, study, and so forth. Maybe one, one last thing that can be helpful, 
something that I found in my own experience is that grounding in the body can really be important for metta practice. Probably for many of us, this was the way it was for me. I found that I had a kind of a naturally tender heart. I mean, we all do, but you know, my, you know, it doesn't always manifest. And I, I could notice that I was open to things, but sometimes when I would open my heart, I would be overwhelmed or knocked over, right? How many can relate to that? You know, it's happening sometimes. So what I found uh, very helpful was to really strengthen what is sometimes called the center, which is around the belly area. Strengthen the energy in the belly. This, in, in martial arts, one would develop this in something like Qigong or some of the martial arts. One develops the center. I did about two years of just focusing my energy so this became really accessible. So in situations I could be centered in my belly. And as we have access both to that centeredness and groundedness, but also to my heart. And I found it was really crucial as a compliment. You know, so, so I, because when I was just in my heart, but I wasn't really grounded, that's when I would get knocked around. So we haven't taught that much here. Uh, or I don't know, maybe, maybe in the yoga, I don't know. Was it in there some? Yeah, very good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 great, great. So, um, so that, that I found really helpful, keeping on grounding in the body. Keep the, keep the yoga going, other practices. So meta practice in our relationships. How do, we, how do we work with that? Again, there are these different ways of finding venues for metta, the driving, the uh, being in public places. Uh, we can do metta for emails. One of the things that I found at the end of that uh, five-week retreat on metta, I actually... Uh, the last three days, I had to do, take care of some outside stuff. So it was a month, it was a five week retreat. The last three days, I downloaded 400 emails. But, or maybe and, and the meta practice was still going. And so I would uh, do an email and the meta practice was going. And so I found myself integrating meta into every email. And I kept with the practice of it. And so I would, I would do four phrases of metta with every email. And I try to work in the meaning of metta into the body of the email. So I typically say, you know, I try to feel it. I hope this finds you well or something like that. And over time with friends, I sometimes had to vary it so they didn't get too irritated. <laughs> but basically it was a way, you know, it's a big mystery, you know, for many of us you know, Anushka uh, referred to this, how we bring our practice into being with electronics, right? It's a mystery. We don't have a, a major text on this yet. <laughs> text, I mean a book. <laughs> and so ultimately the you know, we can find ways to bring the meta practice. There's a lot of creativity asked of us. How do I bring meta practice in the different parts of my life? How do I have that way of being open so the meta practice is just there, you know? And just increase that sense of every being deserves metta. Every being's vulnerable. Every being wants happiness. Every being deserves kindness and support. I know that once I had a, um, I think I, ha I had a, like a jaw surgery once and I was kind of in an altered state after the surgery for 10 days and the metta was really strong. It was like I was developing metta for like a glass of water <laughs> because it was, the glass was vulnerable. <laughs> It could break. No, I didn't, I didn't assess this. That's what happened, right? I mean, it's kind of the, also I didn't have that much to do with my time. It was just kind of sitting around a lot. But. 
But the, uh, it was powerful to really have that sense of metta, not even for sentient beings, but for everything. Yeah. And it, it stayed with me. We'll come back tomorrow morning to the ethical precepts. Keeping the ethical precepts goes hand in hand with metta. The precepts we could say are an expression of kindness to treat all beings with the intention not to harm and to do things which honor and support other beings, to keep the ethical precepts. And then there's that that interesting line that Heather mentioned, um, one who loves oneself will not harm another. And she said, one will not intentionally harm another. It's a very powerful statement. You know, I'm gonna come back to that. One who loves oneself will not harm another. So there's that sense of when we are grounded in metta, in a way the precepts are natural. Maybe we don't even have to think about them. And that as we develop in metta, we become safe for others. We protect ourselves, we protect others. Metta is connected with that, with, with being ethical, with uh, protecting ourselves and others. <clears throat> we could say a lot about speech practice and Kanda and Jeff introduced us, but Finding ways to express metta in our speech is really crucial. In the basic guidelines for speech practice, there are four guidelines, being truthful, being helpful, and then coming from a kind heart. It's one of the, th- one of the guidelines. There's the third guideline for, for wise speech, for skillful speech practice. And then the fourth is variance of good timing, appropriateness, and so forth. And so right in there is let the... Um, let, the, let one speaking be increasingly expressive of metta. You know, it really is a way to work with, with uh, we can work with the guidelines. We can, you know, when uh, I have next to my telephone at home, the four speech guidelines. And I try to use them when I, you know, the phone rings, truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing, hello. <laughs> And so you can do that again. And I'm naming a lot of things. You don't have to do all of them. Listen for the two or three things which resonate, okay? And of course, there'll be a recording of this. Uh, Hopefully, there'll be a recording of this and you can listen for a lot of these, but just listen for the two or three that, that call you. This is from uh, a list of... Um, Uh, comments by children about love. Some of you may have seen this. Um, And it's from the internet, so I assume it's really children talking and not some, you know, 53-year-old person sitting in Schenectady, New York, you know, developing phrases and saying, okay, children said this. So I assume this is true. Okay, so this is uh, Billy, age four. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. (laughs) You know, and and, you know, one of the ways, like before a difficult conversation that I work with, and this may have come out in the speech session, I use the really like the simplified instructions for speech. I say, stay in my body and stay in my heart. And I sometimes say that before a challenging situation, uh, conversation. The other heart practices are really helpful for relationships. Generally I found with difficult relationships, Actually, I have found compassion and forgiveness are a little more helpful for me than metta for the difficult person. Because they kind of take me into what's difficult or painful in my heart softens. So you might consider that, you know, with 
challenges in relationships and can be really uh, wonderful to take on at times that what we've learned as the difficult person metta practice. You know, and take that on. See if you can work with that. Again, that idea of taking the challenges as invitations for more advanced practice. Take a difficult situation as an invitation to grow, to explore, to see how that is. And I don't know if this has come out quite, but the spirit of metta can be very much, uh, the metta in our speaking and our interaction can go hand in hand with setting boundaries, saying no, bringing metta into our relationships isn't about being nicey-nice. You know, we can have, I've, I've uh, kind of reflected on what we might call uh, tough metta. Kind of like tough love, you know? <laughs> tough metta, right? So how, do you, how do you say no with kindness? Not as easy as, you know, when things are flowing. How do you set a boundary? How do you say this is unjust? How do you do all that? I think our practice calls us, again, it's more advanced practice, but we may be called in that direction. There's a way in which we really ultimately see the difficult person, like we've explored here, no longer as the enemy or as someone whom we judge, but more or less a human being like us. That's the direction, the practice. That is not easy, right? When we have difficulties in relationships, can we see the humanity of the person? Can we develop empathy where we tune in to what's important for that person, maybe beneath the difficult behavior? You know, um, very central for Dr. King his aim was always reconciliation with those who were seemingly opponents. This is from Dr. King. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in human hearts that aim to, and our metta for the difficult person, again, starting with the less difficult, can help us explore that. You know, in a way we may question the action or what's happening, but we don't give up on the person. You know, we don't, as it were, put the person out of our hearts. You know, Dr. King would say in Christian language, we would say, we, um, Question the sin, but not the sinner. <laughs> to use that language. Or we, quite, we, we connect with the person and maybe we question the action. You know, it was like, um, I think I was raised that way. My, there's a story that involves uh, my mom and my brother, Cezanne's father. And he was acting one day in a way, he was five years old. And he was acting in a way which my mom um, um, questioned and, and she went up to him and she said, you know, I really love you, but the way you're acting is, you know, is not so good or I don't know how she said it. I mean, I was not recording it, but, <laughs> you know, the way you're acting, I, I want, I'd really love it if you acted differently. And at that point, my brother said uh, to him, don't talk to me like a psychologist. Why don't you spank me like the other parents do? (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard that story? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so there was a similar story where there was a a boy who was about three years old, three or four years old, and his mom had continually said, you know, uh, when when I tell you to do something differently, 
I love you and you're not a bad boy, and, uh, but what you're doing could be done differently or some, some version of that. And later he was, uh, he, uh, he and uh, a, a girl about the same age were in the back seat being driven somewhere on a trip and the girl didn't like something he did. And she said to him, bad boy, don't do that. And he said back to her, age three and a half, there are no bad boys, only bad actions. <laughs> okay. So, but that's, that's really what we're, that's where we're going, isn't it? It's really to hold the heart of the person. And it's not, this is not easy, is it? It's not easy at all, but we, this is our practice. So then just a little bit at the end about bringing metta into the wider world. It's so deeply needed, right? So deeply needed to bring metta, like the story I told a few days ago about bringing uh, metta, just simply doing metta practice by the detention center for children taken in at the border, right? And the simple doing of metta with no ulterior motive to get anything, but just to do it led to a kind of miracle occurring there. And so the sense of bringing metta into our work, into our parenting, into our activism is a beautiful vision. You know, bringing, uh, bringing that heart of, of our spirit into that. And again, uh, for Dr. King, love, we could really, metta is in the territory of love was be really becomes a social force. You know, that notion was that our action is guided by metta, is guided by, you know, by love. From Dr. King, this call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all human beings. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. And this is from former President Obama, who visited uh, Burma and visited the Shwedagong Pagoda and uh, studied metta. This is from his speech at Rangoon University in 2012. I have seen just earlier today the golden stupa of Shwedagon and have been moved by the timeless idea of metta. It should be like a, what, a prerequisite for presidents to <laughs> practice metta. Okay. A new constitutional amendment. Okay. Okay. Anyone who wants to run with it, I'll, we'll be in touch. Okay. Uh, I have been moved by the timeless idea of metta, the belief that our time on this earth can be defined by tolerance and by love. Wow, from a president. And it also becomes a guide to how we act. You know, from the Buddha, violence never ceases through hatred. It is only through love that it ceases. This is an ancient law. It's very similar to the nonviolence of Gandhi and King, really guided by love. And guided by ultimate reconciliation. Pretty amazing to read some of the passages and see King's empathy for, particularly for white working class uh, people. Right? You read and he, I think, where is this? He, he said that, uh, um, 
the white man's personality is greatly distorted by segregation and the soul is greatly scarred. He said that the work of defeating segregation was for the bodies of black folks and the souls of white folks. Two weeks before he died, he gave a sermon and he talked about how he had uh, been speaking with the white jailers in Birmingham. And he had empathy for where they went to, but he could see that they're actually, he said, most of their lives are no different, but they have this false view of um, white supremacy. And he had empathy, he had empathy for that. He really could see how it distorted their being, right? So the, the view was not defeating the enemy, but reconciliation, really the spirit of, spirit of metta. So I'll just finish with a few things here. Uh, from Dorothy Day, uh, a Catholic, uh, spiritually grounded activist, many of you know. She said, the greatest challenge of the day is how to bring about a revolution of the heart. You will know your vocation by the joy that it brings you. You will know, you will know when it's right. Don't worry about being effective. Just concentrate on being faithful to the truth. It's very similar to, some of you know, uh, the guidance of Howard Thurman, who was uh, African-American activist and mystic and teacher. Near the end of his life, he was in the Bay Area And he was once asked uh, by a young man, what should I do? And he was a lifelong activist. His response was, listen for this, it's interesting. His response was, don't ask what the world needs. Interesting answer from an activist, right? Don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That's, that's where our meta practice goes, isn't it? You know, it's really to feel that kindness and to have that be more and more our uh, source of our aliveness, our well-being, um, our integrity, our integration. And we need each other's support in that. We need each other's creativity, you know, we need the sharing. Oh, this has made me come alive. Oh, oh, this has made me come alive. And that sharing, to ask, you know, to ask what makes us come alive in the heart, in our wisdom, in our being. And then bring that more and more out into the world. And metta, I hope, is near the center of that. Again, it can be helpful just to see what, what in terms of uh, principles and particular practices, what, what resonated with me? What, you know, where do I feel called uh, in terms of my daily life? Even take a moment right now, what, out of what was mentioned, what, what calls me? It might be one or two or three things.
So again, thank you for your, for your kind attention you know, on this last evening of our retreat. So, and we'll uh, have a walking period and we'll come back at nine. And I think, huh? We're gonna do a little bit, we're gonna, we're gonna sit for a period of time. We may do a chanting extravaganza. <laughs> so be there or be square. <laughs> <As they do>. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.